Okay, now I wonder if you would do this with me to start with. I wonder if you would cast your minds back uh, to 2017. Seems quite a long way away, doesn't it? Uh, back past, I think back past, what is it, New Year? And keep going, I think back past uh, Christmas. And what do you see? That's right, uh, in those dark ages of 2017 as a congregation, we have begun in our morning service a sermon series entitled, What Does It Mean to Be a Reformed Church? Do you remember this? I hope that you do. Uh, that we had looked at some of the foundations of Reformed Christianity over a number of services. And then we had just begun, just before Christmas, we begun to look at some of the theology of a Reformed Church. You remember this? Uh, what does it mean to be a Reformed Church? Well, this morning the plan is to try and get that sermon series back up and running in 2018. That having already looked at the first point of Calvinism, do you remember just before Christmas we looked at the T from the word tulip? Now you know what that was, don't you? We looked at total depravity, the total depravity of man. That having looked at that today, what we're going to do is look at the second point of Calvinism, which obviously, of course, is the U of tulip, and we know what this is, I'm sure. This morning, the subject matter is what is called unconditional election. Unconditional election. You got it? That's the subject. Unconditional election. And imaginatively, you ready for the first point of the uh, this morning service? Uh, in a sermon... On unconditional election, I've entitled a first heading as follows. It is called Unconditional Election. So you can tell that I've been up long into the night this week striving to get a good sermon title there. So first point, Unconditional Election. Everyone in here, I believe, has surely at one time or another heard the term uh, predestination. You have, haven't you? It's a word that we bang about in church now and again. It's a word that perhaps is almost kind of synonymous with uh, Calvinistic churches like ours, isn't it? Predestination. But what on earth does predestination mean? Well, in our evening services, I was glad that song gave the evening service a, a, a good prompt there this morning. In our evening services just now, uh, we are studying the Old Testament book of First Samuel. And it's a great book, isn't it? For those who come out to the, the evening service, First Samuel is a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous uh, book. Now, at this point in our sermon series in the evening services... Uh, we're just about to get to what I think is the greatest story in First uh, Samuel. It's a story that every one of you know really well, because we're just about to hit David and Goliath. Everyone loves David and Goliath. The way we know the story of David and Goliath. In fact, isn't this true? Even the boys and girls here this morning, you could tell me what happens in the story of David and Goliath. Could you, if I was to ask you, boys and girls... Yeah, could. There was a, there was a firm yes from the front here. 
You've got a big baddie, don't you? Very, very big baddie, Goliath, the Philistine. He taunts the people of God. Who comes to the rescue? Little, little David. Yes, David, the shepherd boy, comes out. Now, here's the point. What does scripture tell us the first thing David does? You don't have to shout it out. I'll, I'll tell you. What does David do, friends? He goes down to the brook. Remember that element of the story? He goes down to the stream. And what he does is he kind of surveys the stream. You can imagine that, I guess, can't you? And he sees these countless pebbles, all these little stones and rocks. And what does David do? He looks at them all, surveys them, and he chooses for himself five smooth stones, doesn't he? With which he's going to bring down the body, isn't he? He's going to bring, he's going to use these, these stones, he's going to use them to, to, to get Goliath. Now, do you see why I mentioned that? Do you see what that tells us about predestination? Doesn't it help with predestination? Because what is it that God has done before the foundation of the world? Before he created anything, what has God done? God has chosen, not pebbles, but he's chosen people. Isn't that, now, now, let's be very, very, very careful here. God has not chosen a country, has he? It's not like God has looked at Brazil and thought, yes, I'm having them. And even remarkably, he's not looked at Scotland and thought, I'll choose the Scots. What is it that God has done? He's looked down the generations and he has chosen a people from amongst all of the nations and all of the tribes of this world and why has he done it? Why has he chosen these people? He's chosen them for himself. Isn't it beautiful? He's chosen these people to belong to him. He has chosen these people because he is going to adopt them and adopt them, as Ephesians says, as sons. What's that called? That choosing. It's predestination, isn't it? There you go. There's predestination. Now, as I look around the room this morning, I don't think I have to convince you of that. Do I? If you believe... What the Bible says, you believe in predestination. Election is plastered all over the New Testament. It is plastered all over Scripture. You believe in predestination. I actually think there's a bigger matter that you and I have got to wrestle with here. Because surely, as Christians, we've got to ask, why does he choose the people he chooses? Isn't that right? That never occurred to you. Surely it has. There's our question. On what basis, before the dawn of time, on what basis has God chosen the people he chooses? Why, if you're a Christian, has he chosen you and not your brother? Hmm? Well, because that is such a fundamental element of biblical Christianity, I want to do something slightly different. And I want here just to make three, three very, very, very uh, brief and basic sub-points for you to get. Now, boys and girls, if you're using your worksheets, you've got to listen at this point because you've got blanks to fill in on your worksheet here, okay? So why does... You see the question, friends, you see the question, don't you? Why does God choose before time the people that he chooses? Here's the first sub-point. Election is not based 
on our works, not on our merit. And here, you'll permit me to be a little bit aggressive, okay, because I'm going to throw something at you, okay? I'll throw a quote from a 16th century theologian, and you've got to try and catch the quote here, okay? You ready for the quote? Let's try and, even the boys and girls, I'll read it slowly, the boys and girls try and get the quote. So this says by a man called John Calvin. John Calvin says this. Let's listen to the quote. He says, Many distort the doctrine of election. For they commonly imagine that God distinguishes between people according to the merits which he foresees that these people will have. You see the idea? In fact, isn't it like one of these kind of telescopes that you see at the seaside Sometimes, you know the sort of idea, you're walking along down one of these promenades or an esplanade, there's always one of these big, you know, metal telescopes requiring money so you'll get a good view across the sea, right? You've seen these sorts of things before. Isn't that what Calvin is speaking against here? That some people think that God, from his vantage point before creation, what do the people think God has done? They think he has looked down the generations... He has seen who will be good. He's seen who will be nice and virtuous. And what has God done? These people say, well, God has then elected those people to eternal life and salvation. Now, (laughs) come on, we see, don't we, that that is not right. And we see it's nonsense. In fact, you know how easy it is for me to show you it's nonsense. Look at verse 11. What does Paul say? Romans 9 verse 11. Now he's speaking of election. He's speaking of the election of Jacob. And what does he say? He says they were chosen before they were born. And then next bit. And before they had done any good work. It works. But the next bit is utterly crucial. Look at the next bit. They were chosen. Not because of... What's the word? Works. So surely it's not particularly controversial from a biblical Christianity point of view. Why has God chosen and predestined the people he has? Well, one thing we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that it's nothing to do with our works. It's nothing to do with virtue and our activity. You with me? You are, aren't you? Second sub-point here is more important. So boys and girls, again, here you've got a blank to fill in. So why has God chosen the people he's, he's, he's chosen? Election is not based upon our faith. And here, permit me to be controversial. And this is controversial. And I know that not everybody in the, in the room agrees with what I'm about to say. In fact, I'm going to say that actually, the, what is perhaps the majority view in Christianity today on predestination is not right. A view held by millions and millions of Christians. So you want to hear it, don't you? 
Friends, countless people believe today, and it's what is called Arminianism. They believe that we all come into the world capable of spiritual good. You see that? We come into the world, and our Arminian would say that we are capable of choosing to put our trust in Christ. So everyone, you, your neighbor, a person in Iran, a person in Brazil, anyone is capable, they would say, of choosing to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the bearing that has? Do you see what that means for predestination? An Arminian would say, That before the dawn of time, before there was a universe, what has God done? He has looked down human history. Listen to this. An Arminian would say that God has seen in advance who would choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what has God done? That he has elected those people for eternal salvation. Do you see it? This phrase is important. There's almost in a sense that a person's faith has come before God's choosing, his choice of those people. You see it? Now, this is a reformed church. So I turn it over to you and I ask you, do you see why that's wrong? Do you see why that is not right? What was the first point of Calvinism? Total depravity. What does scripture say to you in Ephesians chapter 2? How do we come into the world? We come into the world spiritually dead. I mean, we're dead spiritually. Do you understand that such is our sinful nature? We are not capable of choosing Christ. We are not capable of trusting in the Lord Jesus without there first being a work of the Almighty in our hearts. You see that? What does that mean for predestination? If we are incapable, incapable of choosing Christ, then what must have happened? God must have chosen us before there was faith. Do you see it? Arminianism is, is wrong. We are not elect on the basis of God's foreknowledge of our trusting in Christ. So do you see? Election is not based on our works and our virtue. It's not based on the fact that of ourselves we're going to choose Christ. That's not how predestination works. But eventually we're going to have to get to this, aren't we? So, third sub-point. How does predestination function? Third point is this. Election is based, ready boys and girls for the blank, election is based entirely on the mercy and the grace of the Lord our God. And my job here could not be any easier this morning to confirm that. All I have to do is remind you of our text today. And to point you to verse 15, would you look at verse 15 with me, please? What does Paul say? What does he remind us in verse 15? How does election function? God says, God says, your God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You keep reading, friends. So then, it depends 
not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see the idea before you in Scripture? Why does God choose some and not others? Why has he chosen you if you're a Christian? It is nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's nothing to do with who you are or what, you're, what you have done or what you will do. It is entirely, solely, completely a work of the Lord our God. That is election. Now, I'm, I am just about to move on. Before I do that, I want to ensure that you do not, as a Christian, go down a route that so many people go down at this point. And I'll do the whole sort of minister confession bit before you just now. This is how I thought for many years. And it's ridiculous. Many people believe that because predestination and election is based on God's mercy, that that means that it is random or capricious. Do you see the idea? People believe, I used to believe, I think, that since election is not based on us and our works, that that means it's like a kind of divine lucky dip. You know, it's like a divine FA Cup draw. You know, that God takes all of the names of humanity before creation and he puts them in a bag and he sort of closes his eyes and he sort of swishes all the names out and he draws out, oh, Saul of Tarsus. Okay, so he's elect and then back into the bag. Do you see the idea that because it's not based on us that it's arbitrary? Well, surely, given what we know about God... Surely given the fact that our God is a God of order, isn't he? And he's a God of logic, and he's a God of thought, and he's a God of wisdom, and he's a God of goodness. Surely it's not arbitrary. But we must get to grips with the fact that we are not told exactly in Scripture God's reasoning behind these things. What we will, what we must affirm in the strongest possible terms, is what? LCPC? Come on. What is election? Election is, what's our word for today? Unconditional. It's unconditional. There is no condition a person needs to meet prior to God choosing them for salvation. You got it? Yes. Now my head is spinning. There's an awful lot under unconditional election there. I'm sure you're the same. These are difficult matters. Predestination this morning. Second heading that I want us to, to consider here is this. Ready for it. It is unjust, another long word, unjust reprobation. And if you hear anything from your minister this morning, could you please hear this? That there is a question mark at the end of this heading. If you're taking notes, make sure you write down the question mark, please. We are not making a statement about God's reprobation. We are asking a question about it here. Okay. Unjust reprobation question mark. Okay. Please, please. Otherwise, the presbytery will be on my case. Okay. Now, I hope... Um, Every one of us in here this morning, if you are conscious and with me, 
I hope that we are all at the same point and perhaps, I think, all of us asking a question of what has been laid before us in God's word this morning. Are we not? Do you see the question that was asked? What, what have I said? I've said that before the dawn of time, God has chosen... Who's he chosen? He's chosen some people for eternal life and to be adopted as sons. What's the question we then ask? Surely this is the question. God's chosen some for eternal life. What about the others? God has chosen some for for spiritual things, for salvation to belong to him. And this is how God works in the elect, by mercy How does God work amongst those who are, let's call them, non-elect to salvation? Aren't you asking that question? Have you never asked that question? Well, to answer the question, I'll ask you to do something that I don't normally or often ask you to do. And that is to turn with me to another portion of God's word. So let's look to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. And if you've got kids with you, maybe you can point them to this, or if there's somebody sleeping beside you, maybe you can (laughs) nudge them in the ribs and share your Bible with them. I wasn't looking at anyone in particular, I promise. Say Matthew 11, 25. Now, at at this point in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus is praying, isn't he? Um, He's praying, of course, beautiful insight into the Trinity, the relationship, Jesus praying to his Father. Now, what does he say of those who are not elect to salvation? That's the key thing. What does he say of them here? Do you see it? He says, I thank you, Father, And read on. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from them, i.e., those who are not like to salvation. You, Father, have hidden these things. Now, do you see, friends, what that teaches us? We learn there of what theologians call preterition. The idea that God passes by. So this is the reality that our God does not work equally in the hearts of those who are not elect to salvation as he works in the hearts of those who are elect to salvation. Now, do do you follow what I'm saying? It's the idea that God amongst the non-elect does not intervene in their lives. God does not stir them up to unbelief and hatred of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does scripture say? That God simply overlooks these people. That he hides himself from these people. That he does not reveal himself to these people. And if you want confirmation, let's go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. What does your confession say about this? It says God elects people to salvation and then listen. The confession says that for the rest of mankind, for the rest of humanity, listen to the words, God simply 
passes them by. That passes them by. I know that's difficult. So if you want, and maybe even if the children want an image to help you, then I would ask you to think about the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, everybody knows the story of the Passover. The boys and girls know the story of the Passover. You take the story of the Passover and invert it here. You see that just as the angel in Exodus 12 brought death, but passed over the people of Israel, what has God done in predestination? Our God has brought life and life eternal to his people, but then he has simply passed over everyone else. That's preterition. God passes by. Now, let's get to the nitty gritty here. Let's get to the, the, what does that say about our God? I mean, what does that say about the righteousness or the goodness of God? Uh, I've mentioned from the pulpit before a YouTube video uh, that features Stephen Fry. Okay, we all know who Stephen Fry is. I've mentioned the video before. Stephen Fry is interviewed and interviewed about God. He's interviewed about this stuff, you know. And Stephen Fry gets very, very angry in the video, in the interview, I mean, he's furious, you know, steam coming out of his ears, and, and he's asked what he thinks about God's salvation and his working, and Stephen Fry uses words like mean, stupid, capricious, and here's what I've got to lay before you this morning. Stephen Fry writes, he, I mean, for God to choose one person, and, and not to choose another person. What does that say of him? I mean, is this unjust? When we're looking at it, is it, is it unfair, this doctrine of predestination? Well, I think, honestly, it all boils down to one simple word, and it's the word obligation. You see what I mean, don't you? I mean, God is not in any way compelled to save anyone. I mean, did you see what, what Paul's saying in Romans 9 here? Who is God? God is God. I mean, God is the one who has brought all of humanity into being. He's the one who sustains all of life. And then you take into account what we are like. And what are we like, friends? What is all humanity like? We are wicked and offensive to God. And we are separated from God. And we are hostile to God. And we hate by our nature the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? God is not compelled. He is not obligated. He is not obliged to, to save anyone. Least of all save all of humanity. No, the thing that we must grasp is that all people are guilty before God. And in predestination, what has he done? He's shown mercy to some. And he has extended simple, pure, and perfect justice to the best. And we, 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 we need to acknowledge that in the final reckoning of things... There will be no one in hell who does not fully and completely 
deserve to be in hell. And we need to get this out of our minds, this idea that God passes over people in predestination because they're non-elect. That's not right. Why does God pass over people in election? Because those people like us are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we as a church begin to understand the wretchedness of the human heart before God, do you know where we end up? We end up in verse 14. What does Paul declare? Considering election. He said, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? And then what are those three words? By no means. No injustice. And in fact, isn't that old adage that we use and repeat through? The mystery in all of what we are saying today is not that God doesn't save everyone in human history. What is the mystery in election, given how wicked we are? What's the mystery that God would choose to save? Any one of us at all. That's the mystery. No injustice at all. So we see unconditional election. We see unjust reprobation question mark and then we close uh, very briefly with uplifting implications what I hope and pray are uplifting implications this is um, deep stuff isn't it uh, maybe it doesn't get deeper than the idea of predestination. Like it's it's mysterious. Even if we've been Christians for decades, there's there's much to wrestle with when it comes to predestination because of how deep and perhaps difficult it is. I, I want to close here with uh, practical implications of of unconditional elections. How this doctrine should not just soak into your heart, but how this doctrine should affect the way that you live and view your God. You see the idea, and it's only two, and then we close. So, you know, we're nearly there. This is the first practical implication. Unconditional election, this doctrine that we've looked at today, it, friend, should deepen and not dilute your personal evangelism. Did you hear that? This doctrine of predestination should increase for you and not decrease your witness. And maybe as soon as your minister says that from the pulpit, you see why it's got to be addressed. If maybe there's a few in here who are <laughs> quite happy about doctrine and are maybe thinking, Ah, oh, brilliant. I don't have to worry so much about sharing my faith with the Lord Jesus. There's predestination. Some people will be elect, and other people won't be. So I don't have to. I don't have to worry about sharing my faith with the people I work with. Are you thinking like that? If you're thinking like that, let me say to you: to your evangelism is everything. I mean, not only is our witness the very means, the means by which God is bring people into eternal salvation. Not only that, but what's the obvious thing to say about your witness in evangelism? What is it? 
It's something that we as the church have been instructed to do by God. Like we're not supposed to sit here and think, oh, brilliant, you know, there's predestination, I don't have to worry about it. We've got to, what does God say to us? He says, go. He says, this is how I'm choosing, this is how I, 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 this is how I work, but you go, go and make disciples, go, tell people the glory of Jesus. And then, maybe, that is an incredibly pressing point for you this morning. Because I don't know some of you in here this morning, and I don't know where you are. Perhaps it is that you are not a Christian. Perhaps you have never publicly professed faith in Jesus, and when push comes to shove, maybe you're just a bit too relaxed about that. That you use predestination. You use it for procrastination. You see... That you think, well, okay, I'm not too worried about these things. If I'm going to be saved, if I'm elect, hey, it'll happen. And if not, there's nothing I can do about it. Are you thinking like that? Is that what you're using this morning? Don't you see? God doesn't allow that. He doesn't permit it. He tells you, you are responsible for these things. And what does he command you to do? He doesn't say relax. He says repent. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we end with a second implication. (laughs) Please hear this, friends, if you're a Christian. Unconditional election, predestination, surely, if nothing else, confirms to you how loved you are by the Lord Most High. Isn't that, isn't that the most striking feature of election? It is. Because if you're a Christian, what does all of this mean? It means that before there was a star in the sky, before there was light, God looked down the hallway of history he fixed his eyes on you as a Christian and he loved you. Isn't it beautiful? Like before there was night and day and before there was birds, before there was an earth, before there was a universe, God looked to you filled with affection. Looked to you with favor and Consider depths of the love that he has for you. It is a love that has seen you before you were born even. He has written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Ah, isn't it beautiful? Before you were born, before you came into creation, writing on his own palms of his hands, graven your name there. It is a love that is so committed to your sanctification that one day you will be perfected in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sort of love we're dealing with. A love so intense, so sincere that to execute this plan of predestination, what did he do for you? Sends his beloved one. Sends his son into the world to die for you. It is a love that since it has no beginning in time, what is the logical conclusion for this? It is a love for you that shall have no 
end. Isn't it marvelous? I mean, consider it, Christian friends. God has chosen you. He has elected you. And there is nothing in all of creation, in all of time, that will ever, ever see him let you go. I think that this doctrine should raise our hearts in one and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what does Scripture tell you? What does God make plain and clear to you in Ephesians chapter 1? Listen. Christian friend, listen. In love, God predestined you. Isn't it marvelous? Let's pray. Lord our God, we uh, we marvel and we wonder at your wisdom, your greatness. We worship you for your goodness towards your people. But we we ask that we would not use these things as excuses. Sometimes we do, Lord God, sometimes so difficult and requiring so much work and prayer that we leave them alone. Sometimes we use these things as an excuse for bowing before you in humble admission of our sin. But Lord God, we, we pray that you would help us not to do that, that you would help us not to use this as an excuse not for telling friends and family about the wonder and the glory of salvation in Christ. But supremely, Lord God, we thank you so much for your work of election. We confess that it's not because of us. It's not because of a faith that we could possibly manufacture from a sinful heart. It's not because of our works. We see we are sinful. We see it is all of you, all of your mercy. And so we simply, as a congregation, fall before you. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you have chosen a church. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.